0: Hello guys and welcome back to the Fluency Fast Track Podcast. Today we're going to talk about a big problem that comes as you get up into the higher levels and you begin to translate. You begin to translate meaning between English and your own language. We're going to talk about the judgment call you have to make between literal and figurative meaning.
1: Yes, this is probably one of the most difficult skills to learn as an English language learner and really any language learner, because you have to make a lot of decisions on how you're going to translate something, even in your own mind. Everybody starts in the same place where they take their first language, their mother tongue, if you will, and they use that as kind of the lens to understand other languages. If I hear something in my second language, my L2, it's very natural to take that meaning and translate it into your L1, your first language, so that you can understand it. However, there's a problem with this. Typically, a beginner will learn a word or phrase or grammar point by translating it into their own language, looking for the closest equivalent, forming a response, and then translating that response into English. So there's kind of this two-way direction thing. They have to take the English, convert it to their first language, their L1, and then convert it back into the L2.
0: A problem we see with a lot of students is that they continue translating. They're not actually trying to translate for meaning for somebody else. They're actually trying to translate for themselves. They're trying to understand English through their own culture. But this is a problem. There's this tension between literal and figurative meaning constantly, all the time. It's rare that something will directly translate word for word into your own language. This isn't a common thing. It's understandable for beginners and low intermediates because you have to start somewhere. But great confusion is faced, especially as you get into higher grammar, intermediate grammar, advanced grammar, because you start to realize that English does not directly translate, especially with how nuanced it is in the perfect tenses for example or the perfect progressive tenses these are tenses and aspects that don't exist in every language in a lot of languages really it doesn't exist meaning you're supposed to glean some kind of meaning or implication from these and it's really difficult because it really can't be said that way in your own language this is where we get to the problem with translation literal versus figurative meaning is different because it's nuanced heavily by culture and by
1: paralanguage
0: and by context.
1: So ideally, you will be out of that kind of translation back and forth, converting from L2 to L1 back to L2. Our hope is that you will be out of that by the time you become advanced in English. And the reason is because there are three big problems with doing this, translating back and forth. Number one, it's just slow. It takes time for our brains to process what was being said in English, translating it to our mother tongue, and then translating it back to English. Just that sheer back and forth takes time to process, meaning it's slow. So you can't develop these quick and thoughtful responses because it's going to take time. Especially in a group setting, you will get caught off guard and left behind really quickly. Number two, it's disheartening of that feeling left behind. It's really disheartening to try to play catch up and just try to understand the people around you. Like you can have good ears. You can have a really good listening skill. But if you're always translating, you're going to be disheartened because sometimes it's just going to go too fast or there's going to be too many speakers. And like Amber was just saying, We're talking about literal and figurative meaning here, and that is even more difficult to translate. You can't just go ahead and just translate that into your L1 and actually understand the meaning. It would be disheartening and confusing and frustrating to do that. And that leads us into the third reason why you can't really do this, which is it's often wrong. Maybe just a bit wrong or really, really wrong if you just basically Google Translate this into your own language. We all know that that's not good. We all know that's not exactly what we should be doing, but it's really hard to break that habit. And so what we are hoping is that you strive and you are currently striving to try to understand English in English. Don't try to learn English in your own language. Don't try to learn English in your mother tongue. Learn English using English, using native English resources, just like here at Fluency Fast Drive.
0: One huge example here that hopefully you are aware of is semantic range. Words have a full range of meaning, a full breadth of meaning, and that can be very deep because it includes culture, perspective, and worldview. Now, what is semantic range? Semantic range are the shades of meaning that depend upon context, paralanguage, or grammar. So depending on how you use it, you can translate the same word in a lot of different ways. A great example of this is efficient and effective. These two words often are one word in other languages, but there is heavy nuanced meaning in English between these two words. That's why we have a collocation where we say it is efficient and effective, or I'm doing this efficiently and effectively. We're not repeating ourselves with an alliteration or the same sound at the beginning of two words to make it sound good. We're doing it for a full meaning, a full range of meaning. And especially in a business context, this is actually really important.
1: So semantic range is just when you have a word, you can look it up in a dictionary and you can often find that these words have several entries in a dictionary. Back in the day, when we were actually looking it up on paper, you would have a word and there'd be several entries under that word that could mean vastly different things. This is the idea of semantic range. They have broader meanings than just the words themselves. And when we're beginners, we look at a cat and we say, what is that called? And they say cat. And we're like, hey, we have like the same idea, but there's much more to a word than just the actual literal reference that you think that corresponds 100% to your own language. And this is largely why flashcards actually become less useful the more you go on because you're not just learning one static thing, you're learning a range of meaning, a range of possible meanings that kind of combine to make a bigger idea.
0: In the next episode, we're actually going to get into a more advanced vocabulary study strategy to help you guys out because I understand that shifting gears here is really difficult to wrap your mind around how do I learn the semantic range of a word? Should I be chasing down and tracking down the full semantic range of a new word every time I learn one? Or should I be learning by context? And what that would even look like? What kind of study program would that look like? So we've got something in that for you in the next episode. For now, let's dive deeper into literal versus figurative meaning because this is integral to those of you who actively translate between English and your own language, not just in your mind for your own understanding, but for others' understanding.
1: So a major problem with literal versus figurative meaning and how that impacts translation is that you can't always know, you can't confirm with the author or with the speaker what you interpret it as is what they mean. For example, if one of us are speaking something and we have a student and they translate that into their own mind, they can't thoroughly discuss Is this exactly what you're meaning? When you can actually walk up to the author and talk to them about it, you can. But most of the times, the stuff that we read, we cannot do that. So the question is, how do we translate in such a way if there are these literal and figurative elements?
0: You have to use an interpretive method, which is asking yourself questions from all angles. What is the author saying? Why is the author saying this? To whom is the author speaking and why? Maybe even you would add, what is his perspective on what that audience knows? What are the differences between that intended audience and me? Distances in time and space and culture. How can those differences affect my understanding of what the speaker or the author is trying to say here? And in what context is this being said and why? how does the context play a role in the meaning in a way that I should understand or interpret this meaning? If you've taken the advanced reading practice course in Fluency Fast Track, then you can understand that this is actually something that comes from that. This is a boiled down version of the deep reading method. And it's because interpretation plays a huge role. When we say something, there is a meaning on the surface of what our words mean, but then there's a meaning underneath that. There's this implication. And Some of you may be thinking, my goodness, English speakers, Americans, they're so complicated. They have so many layers in their culture. But the same thing happens in your own culture. We have yet to run into a language or into a study of this culture or language where this does not happen. This is one of the big factors in training translation students for ancient texts. This is something that we have to talk about a lot. We have the text. What we don't have is the culture of the time. We have works from that culture, but all we have are the surface words. So we need to dig deep and tie together all of these things from all these different works and authors and what we know about the history of the time in order to try to understand the attitudes and what was really happening, because that impacts meaning quite a bit.
1: Yeah, and fact is we can't crawl back into the mind of the authors, and so we have to do our best. And that's really what translation normally is, is us trying to do our best to communicate the meaning, the implications, the impact that this would have. And it's difficult. There's no short way to say it other than it's difficult. Translation is extremely difficult. But probably a good example of this are idioms. We all know that idioms can't be translated directly across. It's a very fun game to play by using Google Translate to choose some idioms or some phrases in your own culture and just directly, woodenly translate them over using Google Translate. Those are fun. Those are hilarious. It's hilarious because it's absolute nonsense without the context. So, for example, in Chinese, they had this idiom called people mountain, people sea. Sea as in like S-E-A, like the ocean. I struggled to understand that at that time because it wasn't something that both Chinese and English share. Like long time no see, they had that phrase in Chinese, we use it in English, so it was pretty easy. I didn't have to struggle too hard to understand what they meant when they said in Chinese long time no see. But for people mountain people see, we can't translate it like that. They would translate it because that's using Google Translate basically, but we would have to say something like a sea of people or people as far as the eye could see. And this means that we're using different words then they actually spoke to convey a very similar meaning. This is the problem with translation.
0: Right. One of the assignments I used to give my students in China was to directly translate some Chinese idioms for me into English, and I would try my best to guess what it meant. I remember this one specifically, people, mountain, people, sea, because I wasn't sure if it meant a really big person or a large number of people in a people group or a large village or a large town. Or if it meant like a crowd of people. There's different colors and meanings there, right? I I needed some context in order to do that. And then I would have my students act out a context or a conversation. And then they would say in English the idiom. And that would be like, oh, okay, I got it. It's a great way to do it. You could do it with your own language to try to do it with your own idioms to do the same thing. It's really a fun game. But try to imagine doing this with some English idioms. For example, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. It's like the pot calling the kettle black. He added insult to injury. We've been through thick and thin. It's happening, rain or shine. All of these would be very nonsensical, directly translated into your own language, unless you have something very, very similar that captures the same meaning. Even still, you may have an idiom, kind of like in English, that's very similar and means pretty much the same thing, like people mountain, people sea. Directly, we could use a sea of people or people as far as the eye could see to still make sense. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I can't think of some other idiom that really matches that in Chinese from my limited knowledge. We don't really have something like that in our understanding. This is something that is a good example of one that is very nuanced by the context you use it in.
1: I think idioms are often like that because they're very picturesque. Like they're supposed to be a picture, a common picture that the people of that culture and place remember. So don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. The idea is back in the day, just as a little history lesson for you, this before electricity, Americans would heat up bathwater by putting the pot or the large pan onto a fire. You could use that now warm bathwater to wash a baby in. But when you're done with this water, what you would do is you would toss out that bathwater because it was used for scrubbing down a dirty baby. But if you're not careful, and you don't take the baby out of the bathwater, if you're trying to throw away this wastewater, then you could potentially throw away the baby. So the meaning is, don't throw out something good while you're throwing out waste. You need to be careful, and we need to separate them. We need to take the precious thing, and we need to pull it out, and we need to keep it safe, and treat wastewater like it should be treated.
0: It's not just idioms, though. Words are infamously difficult to interpret without context due to their semantic range. Let's take a look at run. You could say, I run to the store twice a week. But you could also say, the fundraiser run will be on Saturday. Or, the car runs well. Or, he ate bad meat and has the runs. Or... A little girl runs the house, and she knows it. You could even say, the congressman is running for office, or the virus scan is running on my laptop, so I can't do anything at the moment. So obviously, you probably know a lot of these, hopefully you know all of them by now, but even if not, the sentences that I just shared with you are probably enough context to kind of grasp what they mean. Obviously, sometimes you need more context than the immediate sentence in order to understand the meaning. But... For the most part, getting the part of speech and seeing how that word functions in the sentence is a great way to be able to tell what the meaning of run is in these
1: cases. An added problem to this is that you are shooting at a moving target, which, by the way, is an idiom. What I mean by this is that not only are you trying to understand idioms, not only are you trying to understand vocabulary and semantic ranges and all these things, you are doing so on a clock. Because words and their meanings change over time. A good example of this is the word gay. Back in the day, maybe in our grandparents or great-grandparents' time, gay meant happy. So you would say, how are you doing today? And you would say, I'm gay. The skies are so bright and gay today. Meaning happy. It's a joyous time. It's a good, beautiful day outside. Nowadays, gay means homosexual. These words, because of time, they've changed. And so the hard part is sometimes a person is using an archaic term, an archaic meaning like happy for this word gay. But in order to do that successfully, they have to actually fill the rest of the context with other words and phrases from that time. We wouldn't really call skies happy so much nowadays. And so if I say the skies are gay, then people would kind of understand from that little bitty context there that I'm not talking about them being homosexual talking about them being happy or beautiful. So this semantic range allows for a lot of humor, sarcasm, puns, word plays, which are all kind of wrapped up in this term now that we have called dad jokes. These are a great way to learn puns and enjoy the fun part about language because these semantic ranges overlap and that's where the fun is. But They're also extremely difficult to catch. My students sometimes would ask me to tell a joke in class, but I told them that they were required to laugh at my jokes because they weren't always very funny, because you have to have semantic ranges to understand the jokes. The meanings are difficult to catch the overlap, and so if you don't catch the overlap, you don't get the joke, and then they're not funny.
0: So... How do you know? This is the thing. It's like, great, Josh and Amber, I know a lot of this, or I have experienced this. I get you. I understand. But how do I know? How do I know I'm looking at something that's a word player? How do I know that I'm looking at something that has a different meaning on the semantic range than what I think it means? Well, if it doesn't make sense literally it's probably meant figuratively. Or if it seems really, really strong or oddly placed, it's probably really is too strong or oddly placed on purpose. Meaning the author is probably doing that on purpose for an exaggeration, for hyperbolic effect, or whatever. You can actually practice some of this in the advanced reading practice course. I have some practices for you specifically on this and just being able to see something that's a little bit out of place.
1: There's also an element of paralanguage if this is being spoken. We give a lot of clues to other people that we are saying something that should not be taken literally. Whether we soften our voice or we reference something off to the side with a motion of our hand or whatever, we are trying to show the person that we are not meaning this literally. Another way to say that is to have nonchalant or very relaxed body language when you start to say this phrase or this idiom.
0: Yeah, you would have to be careful to check that it's not just carelessness, that they're not just saying something sarcastically and being super careless, or whether they're actually intending for you to understand that the disparity between their body language seeming somewhat nonchalant and their words being very strong, you should be able to catch like, oh, they mean this figuratively, sarcastically, satirically. They're meaning something other than what the words actually mean.
1: Along with that, another way to know is if there is an easier way to say it or they're using a lot of words or beating around the bush, they're lengthening or purposefully shortening the words that they're using. There may be a reason behind that. They may be using figurative meaning instead of a literal meaning. They're being more creative with their language, and we do that to make it more interesting. But if you're finding a person and they're using way too many maybe elevated vocabulary or just going a roundabout way to say it, mixing formalities, then they're probably saying something figuratively, not literally.
0: And from a grammar standpoint, I mentioned this before, but the perfect tense often means that you're supposed to imply something as well as understand something on the surface. It's not usually just one or the other. Literal versus figurative. It's actually like a scale. And there are different points on that scale. Sometimes things lean more figuratively than they do literally, or more literally rather than figuratively. A great example of this are Bible translations. The Christian Bible has a lot of translations, and those translations are sometimes based on different manuscripts whether they're based on the Byzantine text or they're based on older text closer to the time of Christ whichever one you're looking at obviously has slightly different words that are being used but altogether pretty much the same meaning why are there things like NIV or the message or ESV or NASB or all these different translations there's dozens and dozens of them and it's because of this scale of literal to figurative meaning How literally are we going to translate the words? Are we going to use our idioms to explain the meaning of their idioms, or are we going to preserve their idioms word for word and just expect that the reader can just read it and kind of get
1: it? So for you guys here that are struggling with the problem of translation and just trying to work through it in order to understand advanced things, what we have for you is an encouragement in today's podcast, which is just to say it is difficult it is difficult to try to get this scale down. And there's not really 100% foolproof way to fully translate the meaning and vocabulary and idioms and phrases. What we want you to know is that we are here for you because it is a difficult balance to strike as we try to strive for fluency. We will be wrestling with this all along the way. So good luck. We are here for you. If you have any questions, you can always reach out on Slack and just message us with any questions you have as we always want to equip you guys and strengthen you as you push forward to fluency.
0: Thank you guys so much for joining us for this podcast. And next time we are going to talk about ways that you can study vocabulary at the advanced level. So we're looking forward to talking with you then.
1: Catch you on the next one.